0: Welcome to Dr. Cheryl's Podcouch, where we talk about all things mental health and parenting. Today, I have on Caitlin Collins, who is an assistant professor of sociology at Washington University in St. Louis. Her research examines social inequality and gender inequality in the workplace and in family life. Caitlin conducted an interview study of 135 working mothers in Sweden, Germany, Italy, and the United States. These four countries offer distinct policy approaches to reconciling work-family conflict. She examined how different ideals of gender, motherhood, and employment are embedded in these policies and how they shape the daily lives of working mothers in these countries. Caitlin is the author of the book based on this research called Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. Welcome, Caitlin.
1: Thanks so much for having me on
0: today. I am really excited to talk to you because you are a wealth of information. I just found myself wanting to understand more and know more. So here we go. You study gender inequality and other things. And the first thing is, I'm curious, how did you get started in that um, in your career? And how did you decide to translate that into a book?
1: Well, my interest uh, in gender inequality came about uh, from my own experience growing up with a working mom who had a very difficult time trying to navigate both motherhood and employment. So a bit of the backstory there is that um, my my mom worked in corporate sales and marketing. She had a job that she loved, that she was really good at, and it took a lot of her time. It was very demanding with long work hours. And so she you know, (laughs) wove together kind of an army of caregivers for my little sister and me um, over the years when we were young, and she was trying to manage this very demanding but fulfilling profession in addition to caregiving for my sister and me. And my parents got divorced when I was about eight. And after that, I watched my mom struggle to manage work and family as a single mom. Things were hard for her before, but they became a lot harder when she was a single mom and Watching her growing up, she was constantly stressed (laughs) and she was constantly apologizing to my sister and me for not having the time she wanted to spend, you know, with us on a day to day basis. And she did this for a number of years until she hit a breaking point and decided she didn't want to do that anymore. And she quit her very successful job to effectively stay at home with my sister and me. She found a part-time job as a consultant that had no benefits, you know, no health insurance, no paid vacation, no sick days, but she was home with us most of the time. And she would tell you that this is the best decision that she ever made, and it certainly was wonderful to have her around so much more when I was a kid, but I always had kind of lingering in the back of my mind as I grew up that it just didn't seem fair that a mom like mine would have to give up her career aspirations because she couldn't find a way to combine them with parenthood. Um, And that kind of spurred my interest in why it is that a a mom like mine, a very well-resourced, advantaged mom, right? White, upper middle class, she had a college degree and she was struggling so hard that she gave up her dream job to be at home. And as I grew up um, and spent time in other countries, I saw around me that things looked a lot different in other places for moms like my own. And so this spurred my interest in thinking about the experiences of working mothers in different places that, as you mentioned, have different policies to support parents and also different cultural attitudes about who can and should care for kids. So that is what spurred this interest in this cross-national project, which ultimately became the book.
0: That's so fascinating. It's so really beautiful. It's a beautiful tribute to your, your mother. Um, I'm sure she's really you know, touched by that. You start off with chapter one. It's titled SOS. And the first line states, it's harder to be a working mother in the U.S. than any other country in the developed world. You even go on to say that this is a national crisis. Those are two big statements. So can you tell us about this? Why is this?
1: Unfortunately, the United States has what researchers are very clear in their consensus on that the U.S.'s public policies are the most family hostile in the entire Western industrialized world. We live in a country that is deeply individualistic. Uh, We also live in a society where we suggest that all adults should work for pay outside the home and turn to the market to meet their needs, right? So you need a babysitter, hire one, (laughs) right? If you need your house cleaned, hire a housekeeper, right? Those are very private uh, solutions to problems that every single family in the country faces. Most other Western industrialized countries have policies like paid parental leave, paid maternity and paternity leave, a minimum standard of vacation and sick days set at the federal level, um, universal health care, universal uh, education going up through through college, right? Universal child care. So in a country like Sweden or Germany, children have a legal right to a place in a in a public daycare facility starting at the age of one. In in Italy, that's at the age of three, right? Um, here in the United States, we have No federal paid parental leave. We have no universal child care. We have no universal health care. We have no federal minimum standard for vacation and sick days. Employers in the U.S. are not legally obliged to offer their workers one paid day off at all whatsoever. It is as if we are robots here in the U.S., right? Never needing to pause from work. And we really, really value work in our society. And of course, there's nothing wrong with work. And families, of course, need to support themselves economically. So paid work makes a lot of sense. But the point that all these other countries that we consider our peers already have reached consensus on is the reality that sometimes paid work needs to flex to accommodate family and caregiving responsibilities. We talk in the U.S. like kids are the same as pets. You shouldn't have one if you can't care for it all by yourself. The reality is that kids are not like pets, <laughs> right? Uh, pets don't become our future, our future teachers, our future doctors, um, our future citizens and taxpayers and workers, right? It is in our collective interest for children to be raised well. And here in the US, we really privatize that responsibility and put it on family shoulders alone to figure out how to navigate caregiving and employment. And what that really means is that it's on mom's shoulders to navigate these two responsibilities. And this, of course, creates really dramatic problems for moms like my own, as I mentioned, and especially significant problems for those who have less advantages, right? So those who um, are hourly low-wage workers, right, Um, women of color, single parents, These are the folks who most need access to supportive work family policies, and they're also the least likely to have access to them in the United States. So the picture is quite a grim one, um, though I do think there's quite a lot of possibilities available to us as a nation to think through implementing more progressive policies to support families, um, as well as changing our cultural attitudes about men and women and work and family can go a long way to easing the, the stress and the heartache that moms like my own feel.
0: You know, as you say that, I learned a lot. I just learned a lot from listening to you now, but also reading the book. And one of the things you say is that the word family is not mentioned in our constitution, which is something I've never even thought about. Um, Why do you think that's important? I think our laws are very powerful symbols of what we value as a
1: country. What does it mean to be American? Well, those sorts of messages are embedded in the sorts of laws that structure our society. If you don't have the word family in our constitution, it suggests that Caring for families, attending to families, prioritizing families is not on the national agenda. To me, that's quite alarming. (laughs) And part of what frustrates me about this is the disconnect between the rhetoric that we hear, I think, a lot in the US that families are the backbone of society. They are the most important thing in our lives. They matter more than any other aspect of our lives. But our relationships with our loved ones are what makes life worth living. But if that's the case and we do feel that way, then it's so confusing that we don't match that level of import in which we value families. Why don't we align that with the way that we treat families culturally and also support them materially through public policies? This disconnect between a rhetoric of valuing families and a complete lack of support for families, um, to me, is a great source of injustice, and it's something that we can absolutely change. Um, I think working families themselves <laughs> are exhausted and the idea that this is on their shoulders to mobilize to get policies like this passed I think is a is a big ask but the reality is that 86% of working age adults in the US will have a child while they're working so this affects a vast majority of adults in the United States imagine if we thought of that group of people as as sort of um, a coalition who can mobilize to create changes that would benefit them all i think one reason we don't see these sorts of policies in the US gets back to this Deeply individualist notion of how we think about living in the United States, right? Families are a personal and private responsibility. That's what we tend to think in the United States In all of the other Western industrialized nations that the US likes to compare itself to on, you know, any number of indicators. All of these other countries, again, are already in agreement that families matter. And that they deserve public support, right, through our tax dollars and through the way we structure our day to day lives. My hope is that we can follow the lead of these other countries to bring about um, a kind of a more robust and progressive set of policies, but also, again, change some of these attitudes about who should be caring for family and whether work really should be the center of our of our lives um, to the point that we don't even take one paid day off a year, right? To me, something has got to give because I do think this is a national crisis for working moms.
0: Yeah, I think that the things that you are talking about, just there's so much intersection with politics and sociology and some psychology and family and values and um, there's so much there. So what did you learn about these other countries? I'd love for you to go through each of the countries, uh, former East Germany, Western Germany and Italy and share with us, what did you learn about what they're doing?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to do that. So uh, the book is arranged so that when we kind of start, we start in Sweden, in the country where moms reported the least conflict and stress and sort of the most satisfaction with their work and family lives. And then the book, uh, unfortunately, sort of progresses to a slightly grimmer picture in former East Germany, then to Western Germany, Italy. And we end quite depressingly in the United States where moms reported the most acute guilt, stress, burnout, and overwhelm. So if we start in Sweden, uh, part of what amazed me about Sweden is the reality that gender equality is built into the structure of their society. They intertwine their labor policy, their family policy, and gender equality policy with the expectation that both men and women participate equally in employment and caregiving. So we talk about it as a dual earner carer society. So they have all sorts of policies to back this up. For example, 480 days of paid parental leave is available to couples, um, heterosexual and, you know, gay and lesbian couples as well. And they can divide that up any way they like. Um, for a period of time, the Swedish government offered a gender equality bonus. The closer you got to equally splitting that parental leave, you get a cash you get a check in the mail from the government to incentivize people to take it equally which to me is a says a lot if we're talking about how laws are symbolic of what societies value a gender equality bonus for splitting leave evenly was really powerful um i mentioned that they have universal child care it's always topping the charts for kind of the highest quality early early education and care program in the world um and it's on a sliding scale, the wealthiest families in Sweden for full-time childcare for their child, starting at the age of one, is approximately 1,700 US dollars a year. That number tends to be staggering to an American audience who very often pay ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a year, right? Um, and moms there told me that they didn't feel there was a conflict between their work and family lives. They thought that they had ample time and resources to engage in, in a job that they enjoyed as well as spend ample time with their children um, and that they had quite a lot of, equal participation from their partners in that balance, right? That men played an equally big role in family life. And in fact, that's written into Sweden's welfare law, that parents have a right to equal access to time with their children. And the reverse is true too. Children have a legal right to access to time with both of their parents. To me, again, that's an incredibly monumentally significant uh, piece of, 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 their legal infrastructure, right? We don't have anything like that here in the United States. So Sweden has really baked gender equality into the fabric of their society. Um, I could rant about Sweden all day because I think it's such an interesting case study. But if you want me to talk about the other countries, I can do that too.
0: Well, let me just ask you something about Sweden. I, I know this sure. is a, a, a much longer complicated uh, answer, but what? how do they do it? how can they do it? And what do you say to people who say these sorts of ideas for the United States are just, they're just sort of pie in the sky. They're not realistic for the way that we're set up.
1: I hear those questions all the time. I think, uh, firstly, we, yes, Sweden is a small country. It's a somewhat homogenous country, but much, much larger countries also have the sorts of robust public policies that countries like Sweden do. So, you know Canada our neighbors they have wonderful parental leave available to men and women Australia has this Germany has this right uh, Japan has this other countries that have you know very large populations like the US and more heterogeneity amongst their populations have found a way to make this work and the reality is that these policies are good for not only babies moms dads families but they're also really good for businesses and the US economy right i think that's a point that's often missed it sounds like it's a big expenditure But the answer is that it's also um, nets huge amounts of payoffs for for business owners and also for our government and our economy as a whole. Um, so this idea that we are somehow going to bankrupt our society by um, implementing these policies, what it actually, what research shows is that implementing policies like a helpful childcare system, paid parental leave, businesses report having either a neutral or a positive effect on productivity, on profitability, on turnover, on morale for workers. And that's because these folks are able to navigate employment and parenthood in a way that feels more sane to them, right? They aren't burnt out. They aren't working around the clock. They feel their children are safe and well cared for when they're at work every day. They don't have to put in such crazy hours. Right. Um, and they don't have to worry about very basic things like we do here in the U.S., like whether an unexpected illness will bankrupt your family or make you lose your home. Right. Or you have to start planning for college. And, you know, when you have a, a baby in the womb still, like so many families here in the United States do, some of these most basic elements of well-being are, are cared for in a more, more robust way there. They truly socialize the cost of child rearing and of family caregiving more broadly across society. So the burden doesn't just fall on parents' shoulders. And all of these countries, Germany and Italy, as I mentioned, also are in agreement about this, right? Um, Germany historically has had a bit more traditional a perspective on um, navigating employment and caregiving. Moms Historically, we're encouraged to stay home with policies that supported that for the first several years of kids' lives. Um, They have since reduced paid parental leave, for example, to one year, which is considered by researchers a good length of time for parents to be home. And they've expanded daycare facilities so that all kids' ages one and above have a safe, healthy, and pedagogically sound environment to be raised in. Italy is the same way, right? These are other countries that, again, the United States compares themselves to on a regular basis, yet we fall so far behind on lots of indicators for well-being um, and health, right? Um, As you mentioned earlier, mental health is central here too. And I think American families, the mental health of parents is something we don't talk enough about, but I think it's kind of a a crisis bubbling under the surface that can't stay that way for long. And I think the pandemic has really highlighted uh, just how stretched parents are, especially mothers. And it's inevitable that parents are going to burn out en masse. We saw women leaving the labor force en masse during the pandemic. And to me, this is a symptom of a much broader set of problems about the way that we don't tend to support families and mothers in particular here in the U.S.
0: So you said that you started with Sweden, which is positive, optimistic, maybe a really good role model. And then the picture gets grimmer and then grimmer. So (laughs) can you talk about some of those other countries and, and what those Mothers are going through.
1: Yeah, so you know Germany is an interesting case because it used to be divided into two countries, right? Following World War II, the GDR separated as its own kind of uh, communist state, uh, socialist state, and the reality was that uh, their policies were quite pro-natalist. They were really encouraging women to have babies and then to work for pay outside the home. So most kids uh, went to. Daycare about six weeks after being born, and their moms worked full time and also bore the brunt of responsibility for the domestic sphere on top of working outside of the home. Um, but gender equality was really important in that context when it came to working for pay outside the home, less so in the home because moms still did most of that work. But when former West and former East Germany merged in 1989, The policies in Western Germany that I mentioned that had been quite traditional, really prizing this male breadwinner, female homemaker family model, were basically imposed upon former East Germany virtually overnight, right? Moms were suddenly discouraged from going to work when they had young babies. They were told that being at home was the most valuable service they could do to their families and society. And so um, that created a lot of disconnect for moms who had been living under one kind of cultural ideal of what families and, and employment should look like. And then overnight we're kind of told to try to conform to this West German model. I, in interviews there, it became clear that moms in former East Germany did hold on to some of these egalitarian ideals, even several at the time, it was 25 years after reunification. Um, most of them worked part-time jobs across, uh, across West and former East Germany, they were happy that they weren't working more hours. But a lot of the moms also told me that they didn't have particularly lofty career ambitions. They liked their jobs, they enjoyed them, but they wanted ample time away from them to spend time with their families and you know, engage in other pursuits that had nothing to do with paid work. Um, and so working part-time seemed to be a solution for a lot of moms in the German context, which is it made possible in part because there are a lot of policies that enable jobs to be at to be high quality, but part-time. So a part-time lawyer, for example, <laughs> that's something you really don't hear very often here in the United States. White-collar jobs are available part-time there. And I think that was key to a lot of women feeling reduced work-family conflict. Um, they also generally felt quite supported with the progressive policies Germany offered, very generous vacation and sick days, and again, a great, very healthy, uh, robust child care system for their kiddos, and the widespread availability of part time work, I think, really helped moms ease their stress when they did feel it. They expressed to me that more could be done by way of encouraging more gender equality, both in the workplace and also in family life. Mo- many of them said that their partners did a lot around the house, but thought that even more could be done to kind of encourage men's equal participation in the home. So Germany was its interesting case study in, in and of itself. Um, and that brings us, I guess, to Italy, the last place I talk about in the book before uh, the United States. And unfortunately, moms in Italy. Expressed the same kind of acute stress and guilt and burnout that I heard from American moms. Um, one difference between the Italian and American moms that I found fascinating was that Italian moms understood that they were stressed out to the max, but they tended to blame the government for these struggles. <laughs> they told me quite overtly, The government should be doing far more to support us. Look at our neighboring countries around us. They all do so much more to support families. And the Italian government is failing me and failing my family. That's a very different discourse than what I heard in the U.S., which is that moms tended to internalize Uh, and blame themselves for their work-family conflict. They thought it was their own fault that they hadn't devised a better organizational system for their house, right? They hadn't found the right caregiving setup for their kids or the right meal delivery service, right? If they just got themselves organized for a little more efficient, then things would be less crazy for them. And what really stuck out to me in my conversations with American moms is that they individualize what is fundamentally a social problem, and so it was actually quite heartening. I was sad to hear, of course, these Italian moms were were also so stressed and exhausted. But the fact that they could look externally to themselves and say, here are things I would like employers and the government be, to be doing to help me. They're not doing it. And so I'm not blaming myself. I'm blaming these external entities, to me, it was a really positive step in the right direction to say, this is not on me. I'm already trying my very, very hardest to make this work. And again, I think the the reality of the American case was that moms are already trying their very, very hardest and they're barely keeping their head above the floodwaters and reminding moms that their stress at this point is not of their own fixing is really, really important. It's not only of their own doing and it can't be of their fixing because these are deeply structural problems, right? That require structural solutions. doesn't matter how well organized you will get. (laughs) Life will still feel chaotic here because we don't support families in the way that I believe that they deserve. So that was a very disheartening finding in the U.S., but I think it shows us there's a lot of possibility for
0: positive changes. So why don't we end with that? Why don't you talk to me about what are some of the the top solutions that you think would be really impactful for working moms and for our society as a whole? Well,
1: I think the American Rescue Plan that the uh, Biden's administration just rolled out is uh, has some really heartening uh, pieces of legislation in it. The idea that parents are going to start receiving money for caregiving is monumental. All other Western industrialized countries already have something like this. Families need more money to make ends meet. Um, of course, all families could benefit from it, but it will especially help low-income families. The statistics about the number of families will be pulled out of poverty as a result of that tax. Uh, that that money is to me, monumental, monumental piece of legislation. Um, the other two arenas in which I see a lot of cause for optimism are in paid parental leave at a federal level, right? We have FMLA, which, is, uh, which was passed in 1993, but it, it allows 12 weeks of unpaid leave to some workers in the U.S., but not all of them. Imagine not many families can actually take 12 weeks of unpaid time off of work, right? Few families can afford that. But paid parental leave, I think, is on our policy horizon. Um, There's a lot of political will to get it passed. And I think a lot of consensus in U.S. society that families need that support. Um, And the other point is universal pre-K, I think, in a perfect world, if I got to wave a magic wand, I would love to implement a paid child care, a subsidized childcare system for all families in the United States, starting at the age of, you know, six months or one year old, like we see in these other peer countries. But I think the most realistic stepping stone to that goal is universal pre-K, which already exists in some municipalities across the country and has shown enormous benefits to kids, but also to mother's labor force participation. And so, you know, we already understand that public tax dollars are valuable in supporting a kids from kindergarten to 12th grade, I think we can extend that same line of logic a year or two earlier in kids' lives to think about three and four-year-olds being cared for in a healthy and safe environment, again, paid for by public tax dollars. I think the U.S. is gaining consensus uh, that that is also highly needed and would be a lifesaver for families in the U.S. So those are my ideas, I think, about what our next most plausible steps are.
0: I love it. Thank you so much for sharing this. I I think about when you talk about universal pre-K, I mean, I'm in Denver and if you want your child to go to kindergarten full day, you actually pay. So only yeah. half day kindergarten is even covered. So I think, gosh, we, in public schools, you pay for kindergarten, really. Um, yeah. And so, uh, yeah, the, the notion of universal pre-K, um, it feels like we're really far from that um, at this point, but do you think that that's true? Is that a matter of just legislation? Um You know, parties, those kinds of things. Is this really feasible? You think sometime in the near future?
1: Uh, I'm feeling increasing that that way because of how the pandemic is playing out. I think the pandemic has actually (laughs) uh, shaken Americans into a greater awareness of how things are playing out in other countries in ways that they did not hear. Right. So, other countries handled lockdown and reopening very differently. Many other countries prioritized schools staying open as long as possible, right? They were the last thing to shut down and the first thing to reopen. Can you imagine how much different that would have been here in the U.S. for working families if, if they knew at least that the last resource that would be taken away is childcare and school, right? Parents can't work unless their kids have a safe place to go. Um, and I think for once here in the U.S., we're actually seeing parents be like, wait a second, this is fundamentally unfair, right? We as workers are the backbone of U.S. society, but unless we have a good safe place for my kiddo to go to school... Or to childcare, I can't work, and so I think people are actually thinking about the sorts of policies that would support them better at home in their day to day lives in a way that we don't typically think of the of the government as being a big actor in our lives. But I think the pandemic has underscored that in fact they are an enormous influence on our day to day, and we can perhaps ask more of our elected officials in terms of passing policies that create a more just, manageable day to day experience because most folks work outside the home and most folks have people they need to take care of. And if that's our reality, we need to match our policies up with the real plight of families today. So I do think the pandemic has kind of opened up some fissures in our public imagination that can be really fruitful in creating lasting change.
0: Well, I'm glad that you said that because, of course, the pandemic has been, though, so incredibly taxing on mental health. So um, sometimes I get asked about, you know, is there anything positive or any silver linings? And I think, you know, what you just said in terms of it has at least made us aware of how other countries do lots of other things from, you know, education to their vaccination programs to all sorts of things, um, maybe in a way that, yeah, otherwise we wouldn't really be paying attention to as a, as a country. So I'm so glad that you shared that. Thank you so much for writing this book for studying the subject. It's so incredibly important um, for sharing all of your knowledge and your wisdom. And again, the book for people listening is Making Motherhood Work, How Women Manage Careers and Caregiving. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. Thanks so much, Caitlin. Thank you, Cheryl.